COVID case counts have dropped as quickly as they rose in December and January. This has led to the elimination of indoor mask mandates throughout the United States. While much of the nation seems ready to move on from the COVID pandemic, some are feeling left behind. It's those who have yet to turn the corner after contracting the virus. Since the beginning of the pandemic, long COVID has been life-altering for many. With more than 200 symptoms now associated with the post-COVID syndrome, questions like why and for how long remain unanswered. A number of studies have been published looking at different aspects of long COVID, from investigating the cause to identifying those at greatest risk. I'm David Reich-Hale, and you are listening to 20-Minute Health Talk. Today, we speak with Dr. Peter Silver, Chief Quality Officer at Northwell Health. Dr. Silver, thanks for joining us. Thank you. We are also joined by Dr. Sonali Narayan, Director of the CARES Learning Collaborative. The CARES program at Northwell focuses specifically on caring for COVID patients. Dr. Narayan, nice to see you. Thank you. Same here. Dr. Silver, we'll start with you. How significant is it that all 50 states have lifted their mask man- indoor mask mandates and many states are lifting mandates altogether? David, it's, it's quite significant and really represents, as you said, uh, to open how the uh, current incidence of COVID has really, really dropped. Uh, nationally, locally, uh, at Northwell, as of this morning, we had 230 patients in all of our hospitals. That may seem like a lot, but if you remember back to April of 2020, we had 3,500. Um, and just second week of January, we had uh, 1,800. So to have 230 and only uh, around 20 uh, in intensive care units is really remarkable. And, and that same uh, phenomenon is happening across the country. There's still some local hotspots, South Florida, some other spots are still in the red, but it's really dramatic. And, and, and with that, uh, we can return to normal, or close to normal at least. Um, and by that, you know, uh, relaxation of mask mandates and the return to social gatherings. Um, but I said close to normal uh, because I think we still have to be very wary. I think uh, we need to remember that there still is COVID in our community, albeit at extremely low rates. It's still out there. Uh, many people in our community still are not vaccinated particularly children. Children less than five can't get vaccinated, and vaccine rates from five to 12-year-olds are not, not quite where we wanted. So there still are patients who are susceptible to COVID, and so we still need to um, have everybody monitor their health care, uh, test if they have symptoms, isolate if they become positive. We have tests, uh, I'm sorry, treatments available that we didn't have months or let alone years ago for treatment of, of COVID. Um, so we're in a very, very, very different, different place, but we're not out of the woods yet. Is there fear that dropping some of the mandates could lead to sort of a quick increase again, or is that not how it works? Well, I think that concern exists, um, but we haven't quite seen that um, as we drop the mask mandates in schools. Right, uh, we have not necessarily seen that that increase in pediatric 
COVID. We'll keep our fingers crossed and keep an eye on it. Dr. Narayan, can you define long COVID for us? And has that definition changed over time? Sure. So long COVID or post-acute sequelae of COVID refers to a wide range of symptoms that the patients may either present with new symptoms or ongoing symptoms, uh, particularly about four to 12 weeks after the diagnosis of COVID. Um, these symptoms can range from very mild symptoms, such as loss of smell that persists, uh, post, you know, resolution of symptoms to fatigue, headaches, um, sometimes inflammatory symptoms like inflammatory arthritis, vasculitis that can develop after COVID to more severe symptoms that are specific to um, certain organs like um, cardiovascular where you can have dysautonomia, orthostatic tachycardia, um, lung symptoms uh, where you have persistent shortness of breath, oxygen dependency, and uh, neuropsychological symptoms where uh, patients can present with depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress-like symptoms, cognitive deficits, memory loss, and neuropathies and myopathies. All of this is sort of, sort of all over the map. You named almost every type of uh, symptom that somebody might have. Right, and and really depends on uh, on multiple factors. So there is, you know, the risk of um, there's genetics, there is comorbidities, uh, and there is also the severity of illness that all plays into uh, what array of symptoms can present. Um, some of the mechanisms that have been pointed out uh, that may play a role is is direct tissue damage by the virus itself. There can be an aberrant immune response or activation of the immune system uh, with the infection. Or it could also be just the fact that you've been in the hospital uh, for a very long time or in the ICU, which can lead to critical illness-related um, uh, symptoms. Um, so while they are quite that many, not everybody will you know, have all these symptoms. Um, and uh, you really need to sort of temporarily associate some of these symptoms to the presence of COVID and also rule out other conditions that might cause similar symptoms before you attribute it to COVID itself. How do you diagnose long COVID? So it's a multi-step process. Uh, most important is education, educating the community, educating our providers on what to look out for and what symptoms exist in definition as of right now. This may change as we learn more and more studies are published. Uh, the next step is really referring to the right specialists um, at the right time so that proper assessments can be performed to rule out other conditions that may be ongoing um, as well. How long can symptoms last? Um, uh, right now, we think it could be weeks to months. Um, uh, most of them are reversible, um, where you know patients will recover, especially the mild symptoms will go away eventually. Uh, some of the more severe symptoms uh, we don't know yet. Um, you know, a lot needs to be defined still and uh, understood still in terms of processes and um, uh, response to interventions down the road. Uh, but largely, the belief is that it will, um, these are reversible symptoms. Is there fear that any of it could be permanent? Um, not as of right now. I think there are more organic symptoms that can happen as a result of COVID itself, be it uh, stroke or um, lung damage. Um, there is still some belief that this is all, um, you know, recoverable, but again, remains to be seen. Just this week, a study published in the journal Nature found that about 400 people in Britain who had COVID-19 exhibited a more significant impact on, on the brain. This was even for people who had mild infection. What can you tell us about what this, what this study means? 
Yeah, so, um, you know, we, we know that the olfactory system is particularly vulnerable to the coronavirus and is probably the first point of contact for uh, COVID infection. Um, there have been um, studies that have um, alluded to several mechanisms by which COVID can reach the brain. So we, we've known we've known this, and this is, uh, and this study really just uh, kind of highlights some of those same uh, findings in a more systematic manner. They looked. Um, this was through the University of Oxford. The researchers looked at the uh, brain scans from UK Biobank, uh, which was fantastic because they had 400 patients who had COVID and about 384 patients who did not, and they were able to compare these two populations. And even among the ones who had COVID, they were able to look at pre and post scans. So the pre scans were before COVID, and the post scans were about five months after uh, the COVID diagnosis. And they did. Um, uh, these comparisons showed that there was um, definitely um, a loss of uh, overall brain loss as well as uh, decrease in the gray matter uh, thickness in uh, key areas, be it the olfactory cortex um, and other parts of the brain, um, as well as uh, tissue damage in the brain. Um, they were able to relate this to some degree of cognitive loss in patients. And like you said, uh, you know, also showed that this was not necessarily for patients who were severely ill or in the hospital, but person, uh, persons who had mild symptoms as well. While we are showing that there have been changes that are seen in the brain, we do want to be a little bit cautious on how we take that um, information and how we process that because um, we don't know, for instance, you know, how, what the extent of cognitive damage was in those patients. So that needs to be studied further. We don't know how vaccination affected these changes. You know, right? we don't have the information on vaccination status. We don't have the information on severity of um, COVID itself in these patient uh, population. And and going back to post-COVID sequelae itself, you know, there was a study that was published in UK suggesting um, when, when they looked at patients who had at least two doses of Pfizer or Moderna vaccinations, that the um, vaccination status itself was able to reduce the risk of long COVID or post-acute sequelae in about 50% of the patients. So those things need to be considered when we are thinking about long COVID and um, these post-acute sequelae. So one of the other sequelae of um, COVID is something called MISC or MISA. It's uh, multi-system uh, inflammatory syndrome in children. And we're also seeing it in adults, young adults, uh, up through their 20s, if not 30s. And that's a sequelae of uh, COVID that, as uh, many of the listeners know, involves the blood vessels. It, it occurs four to six weeks after a COVID infection. It may even have been a silent COVID infection. It has nothing to do with the severity of the initial COVID infection, uh, but in, uh, uh, leads to inflammation of blood vessels, including the blood vessels around the heart, the coronary arteries, causing both heart dysfunction and vasodilation, uh, significant drops in blood pressure, hypotension. And uh, it became very apparent to us in uh, late April, May of 2020, when our emergency room and uh, uh, inpatient units in ICU were filled with kids with low blood pressure and bright red rashes, similar to something called Kawasaki disease, um, but clearly uh, as an aftermath of, MI, of, of COVID um, and uh, seen in adolescents and young adults. <clears throat> We have not seen that same degree of MISC or MISA, which is the same thing in adults, 
um, following Omicron. And, and we were almost not sure what to expect. The Omicron wave, um, as you know, infected 40 to 50 percent of, of our population, right? The incidence was quite high, very mild, right? We didn't have the same numbers of hospitalizations as we did earlier. Uh, but we were concerned because MISC also uh, uh, occurred in patients who were relatively asymptomatic, right. who had more benign courses of, of COVID. But we haven't seen that uh, in this wave. And we would have by now because we're four to five weeks out. So there's a slowdown on that. Without a doubt. Is there a slowdown on long COVID in general? I think we're not quite out of the woods with long COVID just yet. Um, but I, by go, going by what Dr. Silva said, you know, really, um, Omicron variant has been milder. Um, but uh, at the same time, it, that doesn't necessarily mean that patients with mild, mild disease will not get long COVID. Um, it's possible that the symptoms may last short for a shorter period of time. It remains to be seen. The Northwell CARES program. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, yes. Uh, so the CARES program stands for COVID um, Ambulatory Resource Support Program. There's the CARES program and CROWN program, uh, which is run by Dr. Lesker. Both of these programs were really established in the early part of the pandemic in uh, 2020. And uh, the aim of this, these programs was really to provide uh, patients with COVID, whether insured or uninsured, um, and access to healthcare providers and various uh, subspecialties uh, in order to be able to manage COVID at home. The CROWN program really focuses on patients who have more severe pulmonary symptoms where they're able to uh, do lab testing, x-rays, uh, provide oxygen support and oxygen monitoring and CARES really focuses on the less sick patients, uh, but, but providing similar kinds of care. How many patients have been cared for since the beginning? Um, I believe it's about 15,800 patients since its inception, um, and those numbers do vary depending on the search. Um, of those, uh, roughly 10,000-plus are initial evaluations, and about 5,000 have then um, gone down to getting uh, subspecialty services. Um, and a, a big part of CARES also has been, uh, you know, two pillars. One is um, connecting patients to treatments. So be it monoclonal antibody infusion for treatment when that was relevant. And now uh, um, considering pre-exposure prophylaxis for COVID with uh, monoclonal antibodies, that can help prevent COVID in patients who are immunosuppressed. Uh, and this uh, program is heralded by Dr. Zenobia Brown. Um, and uh, secondly, there is uh, uh, another component, the learning component of CARES, which is the CARES Learning Collaborative. And that is also equally um, an equally important pillar to this CARES program because, um, you know, one is, you know, taking care of patients, but educating the providers on what is out there in terms of relevant research, um, in terms of uh, availability of resources from Northwell Health, and connecting providers to each other where you can facilitate referrals, facilitate um, idea sharing, and um, an ease of conversation about difficult patients. That has been a huge uh, help in terms of providing the right kind of care to the patients at the right time. Have kids landed in the CARES program? No, it's for uh, it's for adults. It's just for, it's adults. for adults. Okay, but, but I just want to accentuate uh, two things that Dr. Narayan just said. 
um, these these programs have really changed the way we care for patients. Um, they have between deliveries of of all the therapies at home, oxygen, remdesivir. Uh, 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 being able to refer patients to a center to get a monoclonal antibody, uh, they've and 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 giving having providers take care of the patients at home, getting X-rays, doing oxygen, has kept so many patients out of the hospital, right? Which was so vital to us. It's always important to care for patients out of the hospital if possible, um, but also. <clears throat> um, you know, the concept of discharge is very different, right? Discharge typically means we're, we're done. You, you can't discharge a COVID patient from the hospital. There's still ongoing needs, as we just heard. And so what these programs do, the CARES program, it provides a safe transition of the patient at home to receive the ongoing therapies the support, the medications, uh, physical therapy, uh, on and on nursing care, uh, and really uh, provides for ongoing care, ongoing safe care, which the patient may need for, for weeks or months even. And so they're really both both revolutionary, I, I believe. They can also make sure that any in-person visits are closer to home? Yes. And how does that work? Just from the, the large network? Yeah, so th that's the beauty of Northwell, just because it's so widespread and we have so many different locations and providers available. Earlier, we talked about long COVID research. Dr. Silver, tell us a little bit about what's going on at Northwell in terms of research. Clinical teams and researchers at Northwell over the last two years have done a truly remarkable amount of research that has resulted in uh, I don't have the exact count, but hundreds and hundreds of, of, of peer-reviewed manuscripts focusing on all aspects of COVID, from uh, therapeutics, uh, manifestations of COVID, including uh, uh, clots, pulmonary dysfunction, cardiac dysfunction, um, uh, e even down to uh, the psychosocial effects of COVID, effects on families, effects on caregivers, um, effects on education. Uh, consequences of COVID, like long COVID and MISC. Yes, and, and that has been our strength, really, because um, going back to early pandemic, we were very uh, quickly established a multidisciplinary team of uh, physicians who were able to review all this data very quickly and come up with um, guidelines on how to um, steer treatment decisions in COVID uh, early on. And in fact, around the same time when the um, dexamethasone paper was published uh, from uh, UK, uh, our um, Northwell was one of the first uh, to actually publish on the benefits of steroids in, um, in COVID patients uh, at that time. Um, Going forward, I, I'm also hopeful that, you know, with long COVID that we will have some um, research come out of uh, there. There's some early data suggestive that uh, uh, transcranial direct current uh, stimulation and vagal nerve stimulation might be helpful for neuropsychological symptoms. And we have a very good uh, setup to do vagal nerve stimulation studies um, here at Feinstein. Well, Dr. Narayan and Dr. Silver, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Get more expert insight from some of the leading voices in healthcare today. 
Subscribe to 20 Minute Health Talk on Podbean, Pandora, Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts.